Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Today's interview is with Andy Cook. Andy is the Chief Executive of the political think tank, the Centre for Social Justice. The CSJ was launched in 2004 to address the root causes of poverty in the UK and drive government policy reform. And today I'm asking Andy why social justice matters. So welcome Andy Cook, lovely to have you with us. Thank you for joining us on Why It Matters. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Michael. And our topic is why social justice matters. But before we sort of dive into that, wondering, let's start with your background, really. Tell us a little bit about the Centre for Social Justice, its history, and then your involvement with, with the charity. Oh, of course. Well, where do I start, really? The CSJ was set up about 15, 16 years ago. And the, the actual setup is is quite important to what we do to this day, an obvious thing to say in some, some respects, because it was set up by the former leader of the Conservative Party, Ian Duncan Smith, after he'd kind of lost the leadership. He went around the country and into different estates, and there was a particular estate up in Scotland he spent some time in. And he, he basically had some interactions with people up there who, who said, you know, classic politician, you're going to be, you'll come here and then you'll be gone and we'll never hear or see from you again. And it, it was a kind of, you know, it's been described as a bit of a kind of domestic, Damascus Road experience for him. But at that time, he he joined the other two people who were central to the setup were, were crucial. One was a, a charity leader, uh, Tom Jackson, who was running an amazing charity in London that was working with uh, young people, getting them into work. Uh, and the other was a journalist, Tim Montgomery, who's quite a senior journalist at the time and, and still is mm. and they kind of came together and said we want to do something here about those that are cut off those that never get the limelight those that um, are struggling the most and and interestingly I think it, it was in the Easter House estate in Scotland where the, the life expectancy was something like 20 years less in this estate than a mile down the road in a different estate and it, the question was how can we have these parallel societies so the creation of the CSJ came off that visit and off those three people uh, who wanted to bring together the force of politics, the force of small charity, and the force of journalism and big ideas. Uh, and so they they they, put, they kind of set together. And the whole aim of it was to go after and support those that are most struggling, who often don't get any of the limelight in the corridors of power or certainly in the media narrative. Uh, and, and that's why the organisation was was formed. And how did you get involved? Well, so over the last 15 years, the C- I, didn't re- I didn't know anything of the CSJ, if I'm being quite honest. I was working, I founded a charity in the East Midlands in an estate because I was living there. And there's all these, it was a real tough place called the Warwick Way Estate. And I was meeting the most incredible people, young people, families and all the rest who were, I was seeing the same patterns in their lives where they were lucky to finish school if they did. Some of the lads I was, I was meeting and playing football with, they would then, their brothers were in prison. They had, they didn't know their dads and they often, all the siblings had different dads and they were destined for like kind of one, one end really. And that was not positive, not mm. being all who they could be. And so 
we, I, me and my friend created a, an organization up there that essentially gave them mentors and worked with them and tried to get them into a job because I knew that that would change their life because it had changed mine. And so whilst we were doing that and creating this organization and working with them and having the most amazing time, um, I got to know the CSJ because we got put forward for one of their awards. And so every year, the CSJ do this big awards show, which, which we now call the Oscars of the voluntary sector. And that aims to highlight the amazing, the amazing small charities that are out there that no one would ever know about in deepest, darkest Loughborough where I was or in a part of Glasgow where one of the wins is this year or anywhere else. And we put it on a big stage and celebrate them. Now, my charity won the award and that essentially got me into bed with the CSJ and we ended up having to put my best pinstripe suit on and a brute aquatonic, come down the M1 (laughs) and go to this mad session in, in Westminster where you we got we won some money to invest in we got huge profile uh, things written about us in the media and we got other funders who then came and backed us and it was at that point i started engaging and i saw that the mission there for the csj was about trying to challenge the root causes of some of the poverty that's in this country it tried to challenge the narrative about how people are potential to be developed not problems to be solved which is often the narrative in Westminster. And, and I saw how, and I, I guess I agreed with some of the value base where the CSJ was set up to, to challenge that welfare and, and kind of welfare payments is the only way that you deal with poverty and those that are most struggling. Because so often in Westminster, the argument is about a relative income line. It's about how much, and that's a relative income line is cast in, in, in Westminster. And if you are under 60% of median income, you are classed as poor. If you're above it, you're fine. And so what ends up happening is all the energy and effort goes into how do you lift a few people above that line so that you say you've lifted loads out of poverty. And I'd seen that in play in the Warwick Way estate where welfare was flooding in, but there was no ideas of some of the other root causes that were in there, some of the family breakdown that cost people so dearly, the educational fallout and failure, the worklessness that there was no push into jobs. And so CSJ was set to try and change that in things. And at the same time, I was doing it on a practical level in in the East Midlands. And, And as I got to know them more, the more I wanted to work for them. And how did you end up as CEO? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you've got to ask them. I, uh, I think that, yeah, I still think they made a massive error. I didn't join as CEO. I got to know Baroness Stroud, who was the, the chief exec at the time. And she said, come on, come down and, and drive some of this mission with us. So I, I, it was the hardest decision in some ways I've ever had to make because the charity 2020 was, was growing. We were going across different regions. We were working with hundreds and hundreds of young people. And in lots of ways, we just received some major investment through private equity, charitable equity. In many ways, we're at the kind of things are only going bigger and better. But there's this kind of gnawing inside of me that I I got tired of high-fiving at the end of every financial year because I'd worked with more kids. I was desperate to change some of the tectonic plates, the things that were holding them back, the Mm. silent things. And so at that point, I could feel that that gnaw. And I, so I, I, I did, I joined the team and I went and I became essentially kind of gave up. It cost me money. It cost me different things like that. But I was desperate to change something on the, on the mission. And then when I got in there, 
Yeah. After about eight or nine months, Baroness Stroud moved on to another place and they they looked at who they wanted to take over. And I, it's quite an interesting thing, this. I, I've got no doubt they probably looked at 500 people and I was last on the raggy doll line and they picked me. But there was something about it. I remember sat with Ian. I'd not really met IDS and he wasn't chairman at this point, but he's, he's a key player in it. And the fact that they chose me, I'm not from Westminster. I'm not got a policy brain. I'm not kind of been in that game at all. I've only ever delivered a charity. The fact that they wanted someone who wasn't kind of like everyone else, I think shows the values of the organization that they want people from the front line. They want doers, not just people who look and think that they're clever and, and act in a kind of, you know, tower, ivory tower that never comes out. They wanted they want people who who kind of are part of communities we're trying to change. And obviously social justice is in the name, you're the centre for social justice, but give us a definition. What is what is social justice? Yeah, it's one of those phrases that's used by anyone and everyone to make their own point in quite a funny way, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's definitions. And, and as I thought that you might ask that question, I did look on the, um, I did Google it and thought, bloody hell, I'm going to have to pretend that I know actually what the, what the pure definition is here. But I, so I could quote different things at you about opportunity, about kind of collective barriers for people and all the rest. I think that for me, when I think about the phrase social justice, it brings together the individual, the singular injustice with the community, with the, the, the social side, with the wider plural, if you like. And for me, what that is doing is it's not just about trying to find an instant solution to the problem that someone might be facing right here, right now, and seeking justice for that issue. It's actually looking at a collective of people and of society and thinking, what are the root causes that have brought this about? And what? how do we bring more of that goodness and justice and wholeness to, to everyone in that way? So it's probably a bit of a fudge definition, but I, I like the fact that it's not just about individuals, but it brings individual stories into a collective. And, and the heart of the episode then is this question of why why does social justice matter? Yeah, it's it's everything, surely. It matters to it should matter to us all, and it does mean different things to different people. But it matters not just on a I guess on a uh, I don't want to go too deep. I know it's only midday on a in a weekday, but I think in a spiritual, in a whole level, it, it matters how we're looking out and looking after one another. It matters on an economic sense, on how we're looking after money uh, and how we are, what we're paying for and what we're not. And it, it, it matters on an ambition. For me, this is not about trying to just make tough situations more comfortable. Social justice matters because it's about releasing potential. It's about releasing people to be all they can, not just trying to give a crutch in lots of ways, not just trying to make poverty better or, or injustice a bit smoother. This is about res- restoration, restoring people to go after all that they can do. And as a result, everyone benefits. Fantastic. That restoration piece is so significant and important, isn't it? That we're seeing it more than just kind of putting sort of Band-Aids on problems, but actually it's a root and branch systemic change that you're you're looking for. What were the convictions? What led you to those convictions about about why social justice matter for you personally? Yeah, I love the word restoration, just to say that. I just love taking things that 
someone may have tossed away or or or, or, or kind of put in a certain way and say no these are these are beautiful, these are brilliant, and actually they can chart their own course. I think that, for me, why I'm interested in this whole game, for want of a better word, is some personal things. I, I was raised in a fantastic family, a kind of you know lower middle class family in Leeds, had a great, great time in lots of ways. And then unfortunately, and quite out of the blue, we lost dad, my dad died. And that was as I was kind of moving in my very early 20s and moving in and around Loughborough to this estate. And it, it set our family, it kind of, it was, it was a major, major difficulty. But when that happened, I was living in this estate where there was a load of lads who are, were just the most hilarious, fantastic, resilient lads. And they'd never even known their dad. They were one of six siblings where there was a different dad for every sibling. And that they they had no communication with them, and they might just live in the street next door. So on the one hand, I felt the shock of losing my own dad, and then looking over at the the people I was hanging around with and saying, "Well, they've never even enjoyed the the kind of strengthening of a family that I'd had in lots of ways, and that they were brilliant, and the mums were incredible and resilient, and all the rest." And I just found this kind of juxtaposition between what I was going through and what they'd never known and never had to go through in some senses because they'd never known that father figure. And essentially what we were doing in the charity 2020 was 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 replacing something that they'd never had. That we were giving them mentors and role models, older brothers, father figures, because it had never been there. And I thought for this stuff to truly be sustainable, we want to bring them into wholeness that they end up being good dads. Ash and Terry were the first two lads which the charity was founded on. Ash and Terry, and they were superstars. And I thought, well, if they're if we're going to break this cycle, I want them to start a family and be good dads. That's what changes things in lots of ways. I want them to go through education. I want them to get work and model that. And I and I think so. I know it's probably going a bit on a bit too long, but what brought me to it was my own situation, coupled with seeing the brilliance in the likes of Ash and Terry and thinking to truly break this cycle, we have to help them put some of these structures around their own lives. Uh, it's great to get that kind of personal take and understand, you know, the opportunity that you spotted, you know, in your own context and your own personal situation to see an opportunity and kind of run at it and see the benefit for others. That's, that's fantastic. Given the scale though, thinking, you know, that you're focused across the UK and there's never been a kind of more difficult time when we think about the challenges of the economy and uh, and societal pressures that we're facing, given the context of coming out of, of COVID and lockdown and, and all that has happened over the last 18 months. Given that sort of overwhelming scale of opportunity, how does the organisation, how does CSJ begin to even decide where to focus and where to put its energy? It is overwhelming. The need was already overwhelming before the pandemic. And Let's make no mistake, if you were struggling before the pandemic in worklessness and addiction and poor education and family breakdown, you are struggling more after the pandemic. It's quite an interesting narrative that is developing and in some ways about how pandemic has had some real benefits, which we probably all sit there and say, yeah, as you know, we've kind of seen our families more, those that uh, are out to work. We've We've met our neighbours more because we we clapped and we 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 bumped into people. We shop more locally, uh, and we use technology better, so we don't have to 
travel all the time, I absolutely agree with all of those things. But can you imagine being in a high rise during this time? Can you imagine being on your own with three children and not having a partner to support in that way? Can you imagine being in a domestic abuse situation now with the door locked all the time? And I, I guess I'm, I'm relaying this because you've got a big piece of work that's about to come out. But the biggest issue that has been seen in the communities, the poorest communities through this time when we did extensive surveying, has been antisocial behaviour. So whilst Middle England has rejoiced in meeting one's neighbour, those that are most struggling have been ruining the antisocial behaviour. Why? Well, we've seen court cases are backed up. 500,000 court cases backed up, 50,000 in Crown Court. Talk about the justice thing. Those that are, that if you're in a poorer area, you are more likely to suffer under crime anyway. And these things are backed up so there's no recompense. There's no, there's no oversight and kind of feeling that those um, who have caused some of the heartache and the problems will get caught for it. So I guess I'm, I'm giving that picture to say that it helps still, still our mind. We've, you know, we've got more alcohol-related deaths at any point in our history right now. Uh, so 40% 40 of people who are on addiction courses uh, relent from them through the pandemic. This steals the mind that there are, and yet the media narrative was about how lockdown is saving lives. Now, again, this isn't a point about a kind of lockdown per se, but we've seen no oomph of what the real cost of this whole situation has been other than on the kind of saving lives narrative. So that steals our mind to say, we've got to go and do something. So if you park that there for a second, then I, for me, it's not always about finding the problems, it's finding the solutions. It's finding the opportunities and the brilliant things that are going on. And it's about driving those forward rather than constantly saying, how terrible everything is. So at the same time, we have seen the small charity community, churches, mosques, other places like this, stand up like never before for communities and be amongst people mm -hmm. and get closer. And the small charity networks in particular have rolled their sleeves up, whilst others have put themselves on standby and furloughed everyone. Um, the small guys have got active and got going. We've some, seen some extraordinary results. And so from our point of view, Yes, we steal our mind on the fact that there's problems and going to be problems, but we're actually focused on finding the solutions. So to get to the answer of your question, how we decide is we go and find those solutions and say, right, government, do this, blow on this one, kind of invest in this, put dynamite on this thing. So we're out looking for solutions all the time, of which there are many, and there's a great hope out there. And you've got an alliance that of, of charities that you're in consultation with, and that's that's spread across the UK. I'm, I'm right to think there's around 450 charities that you're engaged with. Is that right? That's right, Michael. You've been doing your research. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, ahead of this. Yeah. Uh, no, that's quite. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they are our bread and butter. They're the best things going. We spend more time with those than we do in, in our offices in, in Westminster or wherever else because of that, that which I'm saying, that that's where the solution. So we love small charity and the, the kind of little platoons, as, as the, someone once termed them, that are out there. And we try to go and there are eyes and ears of what's really going on. And there are models of expansion 
um, in how they do things and the culture in which they do things, as well as some of the practical. And our job is to go and listen and learn from them and bring them back and say to Westminster and those in the corridors of power and those with a load of dollar in their back pocket, this is what you need to put your money into. And with that, such a wide consultation uh, and such a large alliance, I guess you're then spotting, are there trends and themes of opportunity that you're seeing across the UK with, you know, there's there's, there's a bubbling up of opportunity that you, you think needs to be kind of fanned into flame? Yeah, absolutely. So there'll be, um, there's, there'll be certain patterns of uh, things. So the addiction side, for instance, we're seeing, or we were seeing quite heavily over the last few years of the, the need and addiction. But then also some of the great solutions in rehab centres and all the rest. And you start to, to see the pattern of where things are lacking, but also where things are achieving. So you start to go and visit numbers of them and see some of the same characteristics of those that have the best results. And then we start to pull that together and say, government, this is where you should be looking. This is an issue that's underseen. Well, underseen is not the right phrase, but not seen. Uh, and here's the solution with it. You know, lots of groups go out there and tell you constantly about the problems, but never uh, as good at articulating solutions. And that's not always, by the way, about spending money. It's not always about where it, that's, of course, key, but it's about how you can, uh, how sometimes it's about getting out of the way of things to let them thrive uh, and, and grow and, and all the rest. So, yes, we, we use our alliance. They, uh, you know, it's patterns, but also recognizing the areas are very different, hugely different. It's an obvious thing to say. And actually, you're seeing a lot more place-based initiatives, groups working together, particular areas of high unemployment, for instance, coastal towns look very different, for instance, to city-based things. And the alliance enables us to get into the skin of an actual area rather than just kind of saying every, everything needs to be done with this one you know, kind of silver bullet. And your role is largely then... At- Advocacy? Are you are you sort of championing the opportunity to the kind of levers of power to then to to, to then invest and see that to kind of mushroom and grow? Is, is the role primarily you're one of advocates, research and advocates? I would say so. We'll go out and fully examine an issue. We'll look at its historical context. We'll look at an, whether it's an area or particular issues that are going on. We'll examine. If there are solutions or people are, are doing innovative stuff, not just in this country, but uh, internationally, uh, Housing First, for example, was a, was a good example of this. Three or four years ago, we, we've all known the big homelessness issue, which is caused by many different things. But we just saw that the way homeless people were being dealt with, if that's the right phrase, uh, was you had to prove yourself as house ready to get anything. Well, of course, if you've been on the street and addicted to various things and in abusive relationships and all the rest, it's very difficult to prove yourself house ready. So we went and looked at places in Scotland and in Finland, and they had this model called Housing First, which essentially gives the person a house first and says it's yours to lose. And in that house, there's all manners of support for addictions in particular and other things. So it comes as a package. And the results were phenomenal in seeing um, numbers of people not just taken off the streets, because again, that's just this kind of face level, this this top level thing, or deep, rather than actually seeing them move on from the housing first in their own work, in managing their own families and, and all the rest. So we looked at that internationally. We brought it back and put it in full research paper, you know, hundreds of pages of detail on how it could work on delivery plans. 
and then the and the advocacy started in that way. We took the select committee, which is a mixed mixed kind of pol politicians of different colours, over to see the things in Finland. We uh, the then Secretary of State. We went and met with him and showed him this different package of uh, of ideas, and then we also worked hard on media splashes and pressure from that sense to say this is a solution this is a solution and the uh the then government the prime minister at that time agreed to do three pilots and put 28 million into it and those we've been monitoring those pilots for the last couple of years and then we have now launched a new paper to say well how do you roll this out across the country so it's kind of probably a tidy example of how we we do what we do we found an issue we found some solutions we backed it with international we worked across parties to get them chomping at the bit. They put it in their manifestos, all of them, because then it eggs each other on to get it in there. And but we're still going on it. It's not finished. You know, they've owned, they've piloted it, and we're now saying it needs now needs 128 million a year to roll this out across the whole country. And we are continuing to work on that. Fantastic! That sounds like an incredible achievement. Well done. It's all those guys that do it. The, the guys, the team at the CSJ, are so passionate so so gifted and so dedicated and going out combing the country and for all these things is that those guys are proper heroes so what is lost if social justice isn't taken seriously by politicians how does how does society lose out we lose our talent we've got immense talent in these estates we've got immense quality there we've got immense overcoming and creativity we are essentially losing out on huge percentages of our population to bring new ideas and new energy, to bring new business, to be better teachers, to be better parents. We all lose out because we're losing a chunk of our people in, in bringing things. And, you know, and that's not even about the cost of it, the, 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 the kind of moral cost, if you like, of knowing a nation by how well it treats its, its kind of weakest, so to speak. I see it far different. I just see that we all lose out because we, we don't have that innovation, creativity and, and life flowing, flowing across. So, yeah, we all lose out. And I guess sort of the sort of corollary of that question is around, you know, the impact that you're doing and the, the kind of the advocacy that you're piloting and the spotlight that you're putting on on the opportunities for transformation around up and down the length of the UK. How does that make? politics stronger what's the consequence for politics as a result of your advocacy politics is a battle of ideas and if you can get them fighting over the best way to release potential it changes politics i think to be for the better because people see these guys as arguing over the, th the things that really matter to all of us so we, we often are trying to pit them against each other a bit of course you need cross party party things on certain elements. If you can create a debate in an area, it means a subject and an issue and a people group and whoever else are getting looked at. And I think that makes politics do what its job should be, rather than just being about the grab for power, rather than Westminster being the end in itself for some. It actually becomes the means to an end of change. And I think our job is to try and create a debate, create an argument, create it on the front pages so that people are talking about it and then their elected officials are having to act on it and come up with innovation and ideas. And so ultimately, I think that makes the political setup better. 
And what alongside that sort of highs, the housing pilot that you've you've highlighted already, what are the other differences that you think your advocacy has made? What are the other case studies that you could that you're that you're proud of that you you'd want to celebrate? Yeah, well, the biggest one we were known for is the redesign of the whole welfare state, the universal credit. Now that has had heat on it over the last. Uh, however many years and it's and that's and we've been kind of key to helping it continue to change and reform and get stronger but the change of the welfare state is one of the biggest things that's ever happened in a most incredible way i i was on the warwick way estate when there was six different benefit streams going in when there was no real conditionality in terms of helping people move into work whereby as I mentioned before, the, the battle was often just about how much you put through the welfare state rather than the root cause of why someone might might be in the problems that they are. And I think the Centre for Social Justice created the big design behind universal credit that helped make work be really important to lives. And that, I think, is a, a phenomenal change that many other international countries, interestingly, are looking at how we do it. And again, taking the last year in the pandemic, if universal credit as a mechanism wasn't there online, God knows where we'll be, where we would have been. You'd have had people like in France queuing around the block to try and get their welfare payments or food vouchers, as was the case in America. Whereas the online system of that, that got right into kind of people's accounts and all the rest helped uh, it was a really, I think it's been a real un, unsung hero of the pandemic, the welfare thing. So that, even though it's had heat and it's needed more investment, and you know, my own chairman, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, resigned from government because there wasn't enough money being pumped in by the chancellor at that point. Now we've started to get some of that money back in, and it's, I think it's going to be one of those things that's celebrated over the, the next year. So I'd say that's a, that's a big one. The other ones. CSJ is particularly proud of is the Modern Slavery Act. So again, this is from the Alliance of Charities that are out there. A number of years ago, they kept coming to us saying, you've got to put modern slavery on the map as a political issue, uh, which then happened. And the Home Secretary at the time was Theresa May and worked with the CSJ to push through the first ever Modern Slavery Act, which was the first internationally, which many things have been built off and we continue to, to work on to this day. And I'll mention one other one. There's loads of things that we're doing. Um, but the other one I'm particularly and personally proud because those, those former two, they've got absolutely nothing to do with me, uh, even though I try and claim that they're something. You know, people, my predecessors all did those. But one that we've been working on since I came to the CSJ is all things on excluded young people, kids excluded from school. When we first started, I remember seeing the Secretary of State for Education and, uh, and the opposition, the Shadow Secretary of State, and they... The, the numbers for how many kids were being excluded weren't even known in this country. We didn't even know what that was happening. It showed it was not a political issue. So we did a massive paper on this, examining it, the situation. This was five years ago. And since then, I've worked with numbers of partners to non-stop push this as a real a kind of problem where we're, we're losing numbers of our young people uh, uh, who would get excluded and all the rest. What was particularly pre pleasing was in the last general election, every political party had this as a manifesto pledge on, on their, their kind of documents to say this would be key. And that for us is showing that we're doing our job. We've, we've created an issue that no one gave a toss about to now be a, a central plank of everyone's manifesto. Uh, and then, because then what follows that in the wake of it is the ideas, the investment 
and all the rest. So that's another one we continue to work on and not let up. And I guess, you know, where where some of these um, policy changes are, uh, are starting to be implemented, and as you say, getting some heat because perhaps the kind of delivery or the investment isn't as strong as it could be, that would be an example of where perhaps, you know, there's there's a danger that there's just an idea, but actually the reality, the kind of implementation of that reality is, is much harder. What are the what are the factors needed to ensure that what you're advocating actually makes a practical difference in the lives of the people that you're you're advocating for? How do you ensure that you you avoid a kind of political tokenism around the idea? That's our, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. It really does. And you can never be sure of it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I think there's certain ingredients that you, you need to try and see something through. Those ingredients might be champion in the corridors of power that sees this issue as something that they're going to non-stop go after. You see the likes of a Johnny Mercer now, who has had a lot of headlines uh, recently, but you just know whether he's a minister or not, he will not let up on those veterans. And that's why he's in the Houses of mm. Parliament. He is not in there as a means to itself. He is there because there's a bigger mission going on in his heart and in his mind. And that's the type of, it's the same with Ian, IDS. You know, he was he was rolling out universal credit for six years in the DWP, six years on trying to change an entire welfare setup. And just for the clarity's sake, DWP is... The Department for Work and Pensions. The average stay of a minister before Ian on that was something like 10 months. So it was, you'd see these kind of key ministerial positions chop and changed all the time, whereas Ian refused to go from there until this thing, he'd been able to roll it out enough. So you, you need a champion who's willing to keep driving it forward, who sees this thing as their own. You need, you need a bit of luck. <laughs> you need the kind of wind to fall right, and it becomes a big issue at any one point so that it, it creates a response from whatever government is in tow or, or the opposition. And you, for us, the likes of us, we need to set a settled team to make sure we're non-stop on the issue. But as I say, it's the thing that you kind of feel like at any time one of these things could get undone, which is, which is quite nerve-wracking and can be heartbreaking. And what are the limits of, of social justice advocacy? What can't it achieve? Question. It can't achieve individual change in a funny way. It can try and create environment. You're trying to get people to really believe in themselves and see opportunities. And there's often a danger in a kind of, if modicoddle too, too much, you're not really releasing people. And I think that's a danger, probably, if it becomes, you know, it's the kind of rights movement versus the kind of freedom uh, etc. Um, and I think the social justice push could end up dangerously swinging people into everything's a right rather than a responsibility, perhaps. I'd see that as a danger. It's always dangerous to try and present this enormous change uh, ability. You know, you, when you're spending time trying to win people to back you or invest in you and all the rest, you're trying to say, look, we can make a change in this and, and that. And you just never quite know if that is doable. So I guess there's a danger in over-promising in different ways. And I get the sense that, you know, as we think, sit here and kind of listen to the, the list of achievements and, and the celebrations of, of the work that's going on around the country as a result of the advocacy and shining the spotlight on the, the charities that you're, you're learning from, that the task 
is is unlikely to ever be finished. I mean, you you must kind of how do you how you, how do you stop getting swamped by it? I mean, it seems to me there's always going to be a need for social justice advocacy moving forward. Definitely, there's always going to be a need. It, the job is never done, and it does feel overwhelming at times. But that's if you only look at the need rather than the opportunity. And again, it's why I try and perhaps unsuccessfully at times constantly frame things about it's our job about finding the gold that's out there and polishing it up and how you, you you kind of invest in it and strengthen it rather than constantly finding the issues, which of course are there. And I think that's the thing that keeps you going because as you're finding life change and the, the moment and the, the, the piece of quality, it's far more exciting and helpful to think about how you enhance that rather than how you take on these overwhelming jaw-dropping problems that are there. Um, and I think that's what people get behind. Yeah. They get behind investment and restoration of, and seeing the good things rather than constant stats of how awful things are. I suppose also as a knock-on for that, we have this sort of section in our newsletter where we, we kind of recommend things that we think are worth a look just from an inspiration point of view. Like in your downtime, when you're kind of stepped away from the the kind of the tidal wave of, of need and sort of the opportunity, you know, spotting those little nuggets of gold and polishing up. What, what is it that you're listening to or, or watching or reading that you're getting inspiration from that you, you think would be worth, worth a look or worth a listen to, to our listeners? Well, first and foremost, I'd say go and watch Leeds United play. That is without <laughs> doubt the most inspiring, inspiring thing that your <laughs> listeners could possibly do. Uh, and of look course. at the way a club should be structured. Other than that, and the inspiration and uh, joy that brings this nation and many nations, I would genuinely point your listeners to go and find out what's going on in their community from the small groups and charities. You know, I love my fair share of podcasts and films and documentaries and books sometimes. But if you really want to get inspired... Go down to your local food bank or your local old people's centre. Go and find a small charity. Just see if you can watch. Those are the guys that are doing things. And by that, I mean, and I'm not trying to pick on the big boys here, but go and find a local one, not a brand that you know, not a brand that are incredible at sending out what, you know, their kind of literature. But there's these little groups and societies and charities all around us that are the most life-changing people going. And they're the, they're the people that I try and uh, spend time with to get inspired and see what life change can happen. And if people want to find out more about the CSJ, how would they how would they get in touch with you guys? On our website, look at our Twitter. Come and find us if you want to um, go and see a charity or, or some of the policy work. Yeah, in touch in any way of that form. Brilliant. Andy, it's been such a treat to have you on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.